Hello and welcome to the Human Odyssey podcast. I'm your host, Skander, joined always by my palliest pal, the boyest of boys and the friendest of friends, Jamie. The song excerpt you heard earlier and are listening to now is Belle Bouteille by the one and only Laos the Cat. That's L-A-U-S-S-E. This prince of cats and lord of the bins of Motor City is one of my personal favorite London artists. Definitely go and check out his music. Today, we're docking into London to talk to Professor Martin Siegert, co-director of the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London. A glaciologist by training, Martin is eerily familiar with Antarctica, but he's also the third and final head of the Grantham Institute, which we've been talking to. Folks, we did it. We got all three on the podcast, Joanna, Brian, and now Martin. Martin, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? It's a pleasure. I'm very well. Thank you. Nice to see you both. Yeah, so I hope COVID hasn't uh, hit you too hard uh, or your work. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what it's like working in this field and in, in, in this uh, in environmental research under COVID measures and, and, and the world like this in this stage? Mm. Well, what a strange situation that we're, we're all in. I guess there are a few things to reflect on. Um, one is the way that in which we are working right, right now, and that is um, in the Grantham Institute at Imperial College. We're, we're all working remotely. Everyone is working at home. Um, the Institute is essentially closed. Um, mm-hmm. And we've had to adjust very quickly to, to this new situation. And what we've found is that actually we've been able to do that. You know, we've, we've really never been so busy. Um, it's a different way of working because with a computer all the time and with, and with meetings just like we're having here all the time, and it takes a bit of getting used to, but it's completely possible to do it. And in fact, I, f- I found that when we were having meetings in, in person and maybe one or two people were joining in remote, remotely, it was quite difficult for them to, to really get engaged. Mm-hmm. But what I found is that if everyone is working remotely and everyone is, is like this, it actually isn't a problem at all. And in fact, in many ways, it's kind of better because... Yeah, that's we, what I've heard from well, a lot of people. Well, for, for one, well, you don't have to commute. Everyone who works at Imperial College mm-hmm. is commuting, yeah. right? So that's a, that's a lot of time um, that we're spending on trains uh, to, to get to the place of work. And if that doesn't happen, you can put that, that time to better use. It could be with your family, which is no bad thing yeah. at all. You're actually <laughs> doing some more work and being more productive. But either way, you know, it's better than being stuck on a, on a train. Um, and I think what we're all realizing is that this, this way in which we're working now, for some, is quite appealing. And, uh, and if you're not losing productivity if you're able to do the work that you want to do and the ambitions that you have and you're able to to meet those ambitions in this way there's nothing to stop that continuing um, in the future you know there are some other aspects of university life which are very difficult to replicate remotely and of course those are those are serious but the idea that absolutely everybody has to be in five days a week um yeah i think that 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 idea is being broken through through covid so that's the first thing to to say about it and that's the way in which we we work and i'm sure my observations are are the same in many many other um examples around around the country different different aspects of work the other thing to say about it is that um a, a global pandemic was number one on the uk's risk register right we knew this was coming right yeah we knew didn't know when we didn't know what type 
but we knew something like this was was on its way it was inevitable it was going to happen at some stage and what we found out in the very early weeks of the pandemic was that we were completely unprepared for it and we've had to catch up on where we should have been ahead of the pandemic to to deal with it and, th and that's resulted in in the united kingdom essentially forty thousand deaths i'm not sure how many of those would have been avoidable but a number would have been avoidable if we'd have put measures in place to be able to deal with things and i'll give you an example of how badly prepared we we are for it and were for it and that is of course if you're trying to manufacture a vaccine if and when we have a vaccine you need a place to do that you need a factory to do it and we don't have that right now we've had we've been planning for it for some time but the permissions haven't been given. In fact, we're still going through the planning process to get the factory to replicate and produce the vaccines that we know are going to be needed. And this is a good example of, of something we knew was going to happen and we, and we simply didn't put measures in place. I'm not saying we should have built a factory beforehand. I'm saying we should have identified where, put the planning in place so that when we needed it, we could activate it quickly. Yeah. Now, there's such a parallel with climate change. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and that is that we know it's happening. We know it's coming. And the lesson from COVID is that if you, if you apply modest amount of spending now in the right place, it would have relieved so many of the problems that we've encountered over the last six months. And a very similar thing with climate change. If we, if we invest in our future, in our clean cities, in our zero carbon transition, it will be so much better then if we don't do that and the problems that we'll face as a consequence of inaction far, far outweigh the costs of investment uh, today. So it's a stark and clear lesson for, from COVID-19 as to how to view and treat the climate situation. And many people have said, of course, and I agree that, that COVID is a disaster and it's absolutely awful, um, but it will pale into um, less significance compared to the problems yeah, that are going to sure. come our way with climate change we absolutely have to get our heads around it and treat it seriously yeah i'm i'm really interested to know because correct me if i'm wrong but you've worked with uh to um in some capacity with government and policy makers yeah. on uh, climate issues um what's your personal experience with regards to you know um the uk government's response to um climate change well, sorry, just before we get onto that, I, I don't mean to cut you off, John. Sure. Just um, happy to answer that question. I'd, yeah, yeah, sorry. I just want to quickly run through maybe um, your kind of personal profile so that people sure. can get a, a better idea of, of who you are, what you've done. So you started with a, a, a bachelor and a PhD um, in geological geophysics and large mm. ice sheets, uh, numerical modeling at Cambridge. Yeah. Uh, and then you were part of a Russian-UK team, is that right, to Lake Vostok? Uh, uh, well, not quite, but similar. So my okay. PhD, I'll tell you about it. My PhD was all about um, geophysics, and it was and all geared around finding oil and gas and resources. Okay. That was yeah. the whole thing. And um, I, I worked out at a quite an early um, stage that I didn't want a career um, in that area, but, but I love geophysics. Right? Mm -hmm. the, the subject is really interesting. And found out that actually in science and in environmental science, a lot of what happens can be captured within the area of geophysics. So there's a lot of application of geophysics in, the, in natural science, if you wish. And none more better an example than in glaciology, where we're trying to investigate how these massive ice sheets and glaciers flow, how they're changing when the world warms and what it means for sea level rise. 
Um, and so that's what I uh, decided to do initially to investigate the last ice age when the temperatures were four, five degrees cooler than they are now and the massive ice sheets built up all around the Northern Hemisphere. But they melted. They melted over 10,000 years because the world warmed. CO2 yeah. levels went up in the atmosphere and sea level rose by about 130 meters in yeah, 10,000 yeah. years. Huge. You know, it's extraordinary thing. And many people don't appreciate it. They think about the Ice Age as being way back in geological time or something. It really isn't. Uh, yeah. The Ice Age, geologically speaking, is just yesterday. Um, yeah, and it, and sure. it demonstrates that when the world cools, ice sheets build up. And when the world warms, the ice sheets melt and the sea level goes up. We've still got ice on our planet in Antarctica and in Greenland. Uh, Antarctica's been around quite a long time. Uh, Greenland, possibly less so, but both ice sheets are vulnerable in places to further warming. And we, we know that, and they're starting to react right now. Mm -hmm. They've got a nice, enough ice held within them that if it all melted, sea levels would go up by somewhere around 60 or so meters. And so it's a serious potential problem. The I remember seeing the, the, mm -hmm. you on a video, uh, you on a, uh, a presentation asking, I, I can't remember the name of the presentation, but you were asking uh, the people watching how, if they knew, you know, as citizens of, of, of Earth, uh, as people of this planet, they even knew how by how much uh, sea levels would rise if the, all of the ice melted. And it seemed yeah, like I I mean, no, one, time time. Yeah, yeah, no one really seemed to know. <laughs> well, it's an interesting thing because we think we know about the world in which we inhabit, but actually uh, we're so disconnected from the natural world in the way that we live our lives. We are, we, we, we're in offices, well, not at the moment, but, but um, we're in homes. They are um, centrally heated, air conditioned. We, we live in cars, you know, we drive on roads. Everything we do is a human construction, yeah. right? And yet everything we need to live comes from the natural world that's around us. Yeah. And we take it for granted and it's an awful thing. We should be much better connected to the natural world. And if we were better connected to it, we'd appreciate it. Yeah. Services so, that it provides to us, we'd appreciate them much, much more. And we'd look after it. Sure. And so, so you you continued your career as um, head of, among other things, as a head of school of geosciences at Edinburgh and, right, and Edinburgh, director yeah. of uh, the Bristol Glaciology Centre. Uh -huh. yeah. And then you became director of the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and Environment. And uh, actually, we had uh, your uh, ex-colleague, I guess, uh, Joanna Haig on the, yeah, on the podcast. Fantastic. She, she's really great. It was, it was great to talk to her. Joe and I took over the Grantham Institute together in 2014. And uh, we had a great time uh, to sort of try to, uh, well, you know, transform it into the organization that it is now, which is thinking about the research that we do on climate change and environmental uh, issues and translating it to non-traditional, non-academic audiences, because everybody needs to know about the situation that we're developing in on this world. Policymakers, yeah. certainly businesses, definitely, and the public. And it needs organizations like the Grantham Institute to do that job. Yeah, and I was telling Joanna that, you know, it, it, it is such an honor to have you and her on the because in all of my personal research, at least, the Grantham Institute has been um, totally paramount in, in kind of helping me understand the world and, and in helping me with my studies. Like, really, the, the work that you guys have put out there is, is really phenomenal, I think. Um, but yeah, sorry, I want to get back to Jamie's question because it's I all on our website and it's all free to access. <laughs> exactly. Great. Uh, Yes, yeah, so I'll just re I'll just rephrase my question quickly. So, yeah, you were saying how the the government uh, in 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 with regards to the pandemic and in climate issues is kind of lagging behind what it should be 
Um, do you feel like with your interactions with uh, government that your research is being taken seriously, is being listened to properly? Yeah, it's a really good question, isn't it? And it's, and governments are um, complex, uh, large organisations. You know, they're very much the uh, you know, classic oil tanker type of situation where you're trying to sort of nudge it and move it in a certain direction. Mm. Um, and climate change, of course, is the, is the big issue that governments all around the world are, are facing. Um, it's a problem for, for many governments because the what, what politicians, especially in, in the Western world, like to do is to um, make an announcement that has some level of popularity, but not necessarily a financial requirement um, and, uh, and do something that someone else later on will have to pay for. So you get the credit for it uh, initially and then someone has the pain for it, for it later. Um, uh, examples like HS2. Right, of, a, of a good one where you where you show leadership by announcing a new train line in the United Kingdom, but actually the bulk of the spend is going to come way later, right? It's going to have to pay money back and all that sort of stuff. And so it feels like that politicians are showing leadership. But if it was the other way around, if you had to spend you know, 50 plus billion now and someone else is going to take the credit for it later, that's not a good thing politically. And climate change is just that. Right. Yeah. We have to invest in things now right, to stop problems that are going to happen in the future. It's very difficult to take to take sort of political credit on things like that. But that's not what that's what we're asking political leaders to to understand and sign up to. And I have to say, from the United Kingdom's perspective, we're in a, as good a place as any um, nation. So let's think about what we've got and, and, and keep party politics completely out of, of things. OK, mm -hmm. we have um, a legally binding commitment to reduce our carbon emissions initially to 80% of what they were in 1990. But as a consequence of, of um, the Prime Minister Theresa May's announcement just before she left office, now to zero carbon by 2050. So we were the first major economy to pledge to become zero carbon by, by 2050 as a nation. And that's a remarkable thing. How is it going to do that? Well, it has an independent climate change committee that understands what's required to deliver that change. It doesn't tell the government what to do, but it says you can do it. And it knows there are various ways in which it can be achieved. And it then tells government, this is the budget that we're giving you, the carbon budget over five years that we're giving you. It's up to you to meet that budget. And we'll give you some examples of how you can do it, but those are political decisions and you have to get on with it. Now, you can argue that might not necessarily be working ideally at the moment, but the mechanisms are in place to, to make it work. And that's, that's quite important. Allied to that, we have a um, industrial strategy for the first time. Well, not the first time we've had an industrial strategy, but one that speaks to clean growth. We have a clean growth plan. We have a 25 year environment plan. We're gonna spend up to 2.4% of our GDP on research and development. And a lot of that is gonna be focused on green stuff. Now, I take no political sides at all, right? But at the moment, the United Kingdom has got a lot of things in place that if implemented properly, will result in the changes that are, that are needed and it is showing really good leadership on these things. I think it's not working necessarily hard enough in some areas, yeah. but I think the greater challenge is that the public don't yet really fully understand the changes that will be needed under this transition. And I think possibly businesses might not either. Yeah, I, I do wanna go a little bit onto this, um 
this 2050 net zero pledge because uh, personally from yeah. not just from my own research but also from speaking to other scientists uh, about this it seems like there are quite a few issues with it or even for example the, the paris uh, agreements uh, yes. i saw the the ccc published a 2020 progress report in which they said that um, out of the 31 uh, milestones the government had only achieved two yes. um so so there and and that there was off of its uh, plan to meet its fourth and fifth uh, carbon budgets. So yes. I, I think one of the one of the things I hear most is that, yes, it's, the UK has been doing quite well. Like for example, UK emissions are down 44% below 1990 levels uh, a couple of years ago, but a lot of people say that's largely due to the kind of easiest steps having been taken uh, or some of the easiest steps haven't been taken and that the really difficult yeah. things are yet to come and that these kind of these calculations often also um, stand on kind of this hope that there'll be carbon capture technology and offsetting which as we've heard in other episodes with other scientists our carbon capture technology is is nowhere near the level where it needs to be and offsetting can sometimes be kind of red hair so I, I was wondering what you think about that yeah, well, I agree with all those things. Um, what I would reflect on is, is that the, the fact that we have an independent climate change committee that informs government that it's not meeting its its targets, um, that's a good thing, right? Yeah, that, that's sure. part of the, of the sort of government system that's working really, really well. And it's for politicians to make the decisions to make it happen. And this is why I like to be uh, totally apolitical about, about this. Right, because I because I don't want to point the finger at the the, the, the present government and say they're not doing something, um, because this this has to be um, cross party and uh, for all governments to take effect, and, and that's how the Climate Change Act is, uh, in, in fact. Mm -hmm. But I but I think the, the the big issue, as I see it, is as as you pointed out, is that the the, the top ten and twenty percent of this problem is the easy easy bit, right? It's the bottom eighty percent that's going to be the real challenge. And how do we actually the, the further we go, the more difficult it, that it's going to get? And not, my own feeling is that when I speak to people, my you know my family and you know, people that I meet, my friends, they don't really understand. They're educated people; they don't really understand. They understand that climate change is happening, right? Mm -hmm. So that's good because that's science yeah. doing a good <laughs> job, right, in informing people. But the kind of that bit's done, right? It will never finish, of course. We want to keep understanding about the world around us. But in terms of, of getting the, uh, the popular opinion behind the fact that climate change is happening and that we're responsible for it, right? That, that's largely happened now, which is great. There'd always been some loonies that don't accept it, but you never change their mind, right? Yeah. So, so that's good. The next question is, how do we all change our lifestyles to deliver the zero carbon transition? And, and the, uh, the Citizens' Assembly was quite a good example of tapping into the mood of the nation insofar as that that's concerned. Um, and the Citizens Assembly is great, right? Because it, it allows um, a cross-section of our society to, to work on these problems, to be informed about them and come out with some, some answers. And, and what you get is, is an appreciation of this issue, right? Mm -hmm. But what you also see is a slight reluctance to, to change our behavior, to change our ways. And yeah. for me, that's quite concerning, right? So that, do you that. think that in some way we're kind of deluding ourselves, for example, with carbon capture, that because uh, from the, the scale that I see that's necessary to fulfill the, the 1.5 or the 2 degree 
plans from the Paris Agreement, it seems like we're just nowhere near having that technology or on the scale that's necessary. Um, do you think that yeah. in some way we are kind of deluding ourselves into thinking, you know, we can do it, we just need to do that thing later and like kind of we can have the, the, the cake and eat it too sort of thing. So we know, we, well, we know that carbon capture ha happens, we know how to do it. We've got a carbon capture demonstrator plant at Imperial College, right? It's the size of a sort of three or four story building. So, you know, it's pretty sizable not at the scale that's needed to, to make a difference, but yeah. And there are some examples of it, of it at a larger scale around the world. And we're learning from things, but you know, I was having conversations about this over 10 years ago, um, where we were yeah. trying to retrofit a um, coal-fired power stations, a you know, big coal-fired power stations at Longanet in, in Scotland, which was no longer there, was, was um, a good example. And it got really close. You know, the government had a 1 billion pound prize uh, for a company to take it on. And um, Scottish Power nearly did it. They got very close, but the full cost was something like 1.2 or 1.3 billion. And they right. couldn't find the additional 200, 300 million to, to make it work. And so it didn't happen. So we get really close to, to edging forward on this problem, uh, and, but missing out. Right? And so what we need to do is, is, to, is to scale things up and learn so much more when it comes to carbon capture and, and, and storage. Once you start to scale things, they become efficiencies, the costs will start to come down and you could start to roll, roll it out. At the moment, we, we could do it. We could, we could have um, direct air capture, take the carbon dioxide out of it, but it would be really expensive, you know, something of the order yeah. of 400 pounds a tonne, something like that. And what it would mean is that um, flying from the United Kingdom, say to the United States, would be slightly more than double the price of a, of a ticket at the moment, mm -hmm. but it would be carbon free, right? But it yeah. would be much more expensive than it is right now. Well, that's a choice, right? And, and when you look at the Citizens' Assembly, that's not a choice they, ex they accepted, right? Citizens' Assembly, we said, we, we're really not going to stop flying. So we're going to wait yeah. for some magic to happen, like electric airplanes or something like that. And that's, very that's briefly, just tell us a, a little bit more of how the Citizens' Assembly functions. Yes, okay. So uh, it's, it's a great thing, right? And it's, and it's quite, quite new. So what happens is they're presented with a, a certain problem and they're given... Uh, scientific evidence so they understand the problem and then they're given a, a, a range of scenarios as to, as to how to get out of it ranging from do nothing to do a lot and things in between and then there's a voting on those by the people in the in the assembly and so you get a judgment of, of the sort of cross-section of society about how it's minded as a, how we're minded as a nation to view some of these some of these things and um, with flying my, my opinion is we should be simply flying a lot less right that that's it and, and, and we should be weaning ourselves off ridiculous cheap holidays in hot places, right? Which is, yeah. which is causing huge amounts of environmental damage yeah, in, as a consequence of emissions with no real benefit, really. And there are other things we can do to, to take holidays. We should be investing in, in train travel um, a, a lot more. And there'll be yeah, some things sure. which you really can't stop, stop doing, but you know, we've got used to it. It's not normal. I mean. It's, a, it's a, another construction over the last 10, 20, 30 years or so. You go up to the 1970s and it was nowhere near, you know, holidays in this way were nowhere near the, the level that they are now. So we've built something in that we, we, we believe has always been there and it really hasn't. So it's a behavioral change. And, and I, there were sort of two big issues and government aside that, that, are, that are causing problems. One is behavior. And I think we all just need to understand that the future 
is a great future, zero carbon future with clean air, right, with efficient transport, um, allowing us to do the things we want to do in life, but not in a way that stops future generations from doing the things that they want to do in, in their lives. Right? Yeah. That, that, who would not want that future? Right? Yeah, and we should be signing up to And with business, you know, unfortunately, there are vested interests at, at stake with business and oil companies would be the song, but there are many others uh, as well. And they simply make money. Their business makes money in the fossil fuel driven society that we've currently got. And when you're thinking about a transition for some of these companies, it either means they have to stop, right? And that's not good from a profitability perspective, obviously, uh, or they have to change. And there's a lot of risk involved in, in changing as well. But unless those things happen, unless we stop organizations that are polluting and either get rid of them or change them into something that is not polluting, unless we do those things, my fear is that the transition won't be as, uh, won't happen. It certainly won't happen as quickly as it could do. And, the, and it's vested interests uh, at stake here. And probably not a large number of vested interests either. You know, a, a relatively minority of people who are making an awful lot of money out of the situation and yet have um, access to uh, decision makers and power and keep things where they are. And a, a great example, yeah. of course, is, is fossil fuel lobbying against uh, climate action, which we all know about. It's been going on for, for decades. Things like ag agriculture as well. Um, agriculture mm. industry is massively a, a huge user of fossil fuels. I mean, a lot of oil goes into our modern agriculture system. Um, but I, I want to ask no. just um, about kind of, there's been a lot of talk about how maybe what's necessary is uh, more than just kind of mitigation measures or small changes. You see a lot more people nowadays asking or calling for um, entire kind of entire upending of, of our of the ways that we consume, the way we produce, and really just the economic uh, the the way their economy works, right? Our economic uh, model. Uh, people like you know, for example, we're planning on having on the podcast as well um, Olivier Descuter, who's a UN special envoy on on food safety, and then today on on extreme poverty. Uh, but, you know, scientists everywhere seem to, to say, okay, well, now we're kind of getting closer to the truth that potentially it's, it's not just these small changes that need to be made, it's our entire economic model that needs to change. Um, I don't know, do you kind of agree with this? And I wonder if this kind of idea is kind of propagated a little bit inside a place like Grantham Institute. How do people feel mm -hmm. about this? So adoption of a circular economy, um, adoption of, of systems change that has to happen. These are these are ideas which are obviously where we need to head towards, and they become quite difficult to to realise. But my 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 own opinion on, on this is is that forcing a circular economy and forcing systems change um, that might be really difficult to do, right? But if we if we force it through behavioural change, that is, we, it's because we want it to happen and we, and and we demand it to happen. That's a much better way to do it. So so informing people that we've all got we're all part of this problem and we are all part of the solution to climate change it's not we can't expect a politician to wave a wand and and, and somehow it will go away i.e someone else's problem and they'll deal with it this is something that we all have to face and and, and sign up to um, agriculture is another is a good example that you raise again my my opinion is that we can drive that ourselves through dietary change 
to think about eating much less meat or no meat than, than we do now. Um, and that will reflect on how we grow our food. And that's not a bad thing at all. There are some great examples. I mean, I, I do like to um, share this anecdote. We went vegan, my family, but for that we have done for the last couple of years. Um, not that we're religious or anything, but it's a you know it's a time of year after Christmas, and it's a good thing to try try to do. And it's a really interesting experience to to, to be vegan um, for an extended, yeah. extended period. And uh, and what we found out is is that. Um, when you go to a supermarket, they'll, they'll have like a, an expanding array of vegan foods, vegetarian and vegan foods. And, uh, and if you go there, actually what you find sort of pre-COVID unfortunately is that, that people start to talk to you. It's like a, it's like a social scene by the vegan yeah. food. You start to look at something and someone might ask you, well, what is it like? And you have a conversation. Mm. It's really quite good. You know, you feel like you're part of a, of a movement, which is great. Um, the vegan food products are, are expanding and improving all, all the time. And, and it's completely possible to, to um, have a vegan lifestyle. It, it, it truly is. Yeah. Nothing to Speaking stop of these I'm, I'm not a vegan myself, but I'm, I, I eat very yeah. little meat these days. Yeah. Have you heard of um, th movements like uh, Incredible Edible? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No? Yeah, from Todd Morton in the UK, where they, they decide to kind of take over public spaces to grow their own food. Uh, I thought that was a really... Kind of good way to, yeah, to a good direction to move in uh, in terms of food and it seemed to be like you said a kind of social um a, a way to socialize as well to get to know your community um but, it, it um, is ex extremely important that people don't feel that they're on their own with this yeah. this issue climate change and that, that, that everyone is, is with them and it's also extremely important that, that no one feels that they're making uh, you know difficult decisions uh, and and possibly you know painful decisions that no one else is taking as well, right? So, so having these sort of social creations is a, is is a wonderful um, thing. Um, and what's better than than seeing food grow locally? You know, you're again connecting yourself back into nature. Yeah. We're, 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 it's so such a shame that that we we are living our lives in this hermetically sealed condition, and and, and not mm -hmm. appreciating the world around us. And it's the world around us that provides all the things that we need to live. And yet somehow yeah. we, we, we've disconnected ourselves from it. So do you that's think the, if, that's the root of the problem, as I, as I would say. Mm -hmm. Do you think but if, yeah. for instance, the Citizens Assembly were not only provided with the knowledge, but almost provided with experiments such as, such as you partook in, and just like different uh, diets and, and such, just kind of like an experiment in a different sort of mm -hmm. culture, do you think they would be more willing to... Uh, much more than than they they did with the survey took place. Yeah, well, absolutely. To... So that that is exactly right, and that's essentially why we did it. Um, I started it in a couple of years ago as as well. Just to, I wanted to see what it was like. I keep telling people yeah. in meetings like this that you should be eating a lot less meat. Uh, you should be thinking about about becoming vegan. And I thought, well, I actually I haven't really done that for an extended period myself, so probably need to do it. Yeah. And and I did it, and it was a very interesting experiment. As you, as you said, so from a scientist, you know, I I thrived. I was absolutely fine. <laughs> some very interesting meals. There were some great cookbooks you, you can take out. You can eat some foods that you probably wouldn't have come across before, and some types of vegetables that you wouldn't have come across before. It's really fun. So everyone should do it. Vegan for them. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So with initiatives such as the Paris Agreement, uh, but not, not, perhaps not necessarily in relation to those, but are, in general, are you 
optimistic that we will be able to overcome the climate crisis? Uh, always optimistic uh, about it. Um, uh, and that's because if you become pessimistic about it, you know what the outcome will be, right? We won't do anything. Why am I optimistic about it? It's not necessarily because I think business really gets it and it's not necessarily because international governments getting it and acting on it. Not necessarily. They are to a degree. Um, the reason I'm really optimistic about it is because when I speak to people at university, at Imperial College and in other places, at Lancaster and lots of other places, young people really get it. Right? They understand that climate change is happening and we've got to do something about it. The next 30 years is the zero carbon transition and people like you and your contemporaries, it's your problem. This is the problem that, that you're going to face in, in, in business and where you, wherever you work. The next 30 years is going to be your career, essentially. And it's going to be the, 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 the zero carbon transition will happen, have to happen in that time. And I look, look at young people all around the world who absolutely understand that problem, that, that this is something they're going to have to dedicate themselves to. And I see great, I'm greatly optimistic when, when I see people um, in that. In 10, 20 years time, we need people who really understand about the need to change and climate change. And they need to be leading organizations that are yet not doing it. Yeah. And I see that transition as being quite natural. Whether it's going to be quick enough right, to keep temperatures to within 1.5 degrees of what it was in pre-industrial times, I'm not so certain about. I'm not, I'm not so certain about that. Mm -hmm. But the change is happening. It's, it's going to happen. It is inevitable. You know, young people who understand the need for change will be inheriting positions of power all around the world in the next decade or so. Right? And, and they will force the change that is needed. And there's no way back from it. You know, it'll only be enhanced as, as we go forward. The problem that we have is the, the incumbents at the moment aren't acting quickly enough. And so even if, you know, in 10 years' time, we have all major organisations all around the world signed up to do it, it, it the damage may, may have already been done. So I think limiting climate change to its potentially worse condition, I'm very, very confident that we'll be able to do that because of the young people coming through the system. Um, the question, I think, is, is whether universities are training those people well enough at, at the moment. Okay. Right? And, you know, I've got a, a lot of opinions on that matter, <laughs> but I don't think they really are. Um, you know, we, treat, we, we train engineers in the same way that we've always trained them we, we train you know lots of historians in the way they've always 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 trained them um but the future is so much different we'll need to be so much different to the past that you know in our training needs to reflect the challenges that are coming up and that i think is a is a is a problem for universities to to, to think about for example how many you know i'll ask you a question how many universities which have business schools have a business school which had a, has a dedicated climate program yeah not many that i can think of. i know lancaster has maybe one class around environment I, barely I, I, i'll tell you the answer as far as i'm aware and i often say this and i'd love to be corrected but i never have been but i'd love to be the answer is one and that's at imperial college climate change management finance and we set it up for the reason that we couldn't find another business school that had a dedicated climate. Not talking about sustainability, because those are really good and many business schools have them, but we're talking about zero carbon transition, which is explicit, right? And, and there's only one, but that's crazy because the biggest challenge facing business 
in the next 30 years is the zero carbon transition and business schools in the country and around the world aren't, fo- aren't focused on it, which yeah. is nuts. That sounds, that sounds quite crazy. Um, I, I want to move us along onto your research um, mm. onto the Arctic, but just before I do that, could we maybe just kind of very quickly uh, get from you kind of, it, was there a moment that kind of, you know, turned the switch and, and you thought, oh my God, like this, this is a real problem. Like climate change is, is where you kind of understood the, the uh, enormous problem or the urgency of it. Like I always kind of reflect on my own experiences, uh, the, my kind of switch moment, having been in the Cook Islands, seeing, um, uh, talking to people, telling me that the place that they played on the beaches of the Cook Islands are now completely underwater or that some islands yeah. had to be evacuated because of salinization of the mm-hmm. island. Um, or even, you know, coral bleach, seeing corals bleached um, as well. We're just, these kind of moments, I think, really affected me and kind of pushed me towards where I am today. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if uh, quite, if you can quickly kind of give us a little rundown of that switch moment for you. Yeah, sure. I don't think it really was a switch moment. And that probably just reflects the the, the time in which I've been developing my, my career, uh, really. So in the, in the mid-1980s, when I was doing my undergraduate in geophysics all lined up mm-hmm. to be essentially an oil company executive and yeah. i realized then i didn't want to do it and i'd understood the climate problem of course at, at that stage and then we had um intergovernmental panel on climate change assessment reports started to come through confirming the scientific evidence and and each time we have an assessment report it adds further weight to to our knowledge of this but doesn't change the narrative really, really at all uh, and you know, my career has sort of grown as those assessment reports have been have been made. And all it really does is further confirm what we already know about the situation. When I started um, my studies, my research, it was only a decade earlier that people had first started talking about Antarctica, West Antarctica being at risk because of carbon dioxide changes, a seminal paper in 1978. Um, and so I sort of grew up with these, these, these works and, and grew up with this developing appreciation that we've got a real problem in, in environmental sciences and in glaciology in particular. Um, my, my research in the Ice Age was again revealing that when you change the planet's temperature, the cryosphere changes, right? And it's pretty straightforward to understand that. Some of the details are quite interesting. And, you know, I did field work in, in the Arctic and, uh, and in the Alps and in Antarctica. The Alps is quite revealing because when you go there, um, you don't have to go back, you know, return for very long. You can go there one year, come back the next year, and you'll see the ice changing. The ice would have would have melted away. You know, some glaciers that we'd have been to, they were going away in the early 2000s and the late 1990s, 10 plus meters a year. So, you know, you set, yeah. you're working at the ice edge and you go back to the same place and the ice is no longer there. You know, it's, 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 and there's a lot of ice that, that yeah. has melted. So, uh, but all this is just, reinforcing what we know to be true uh, really uh, and, and i think i've been it's, it's quite an interesting um uh career to have had in the time i've had it that, that it, my career has developed as this issue has has sort of grown in, in strength i think for people that might be older than me um that that might be different you know that if you were 20 years older than me for example when you were doing your undergraduate, this probably wasn't the problem that we knew it was 20 years later. And so there would have had to have been some sort yeah, of sure. moment that, that you suddenly thought, actually, everything I knew previously 
that's now changed in the future. But for me, it was more natural than, than that. Yeah, you, there was a paper that, um, speaking of sort of ice ages and such, there's a paper that I got to read from the Grantham Institute that you were, uh, I think, one of the authors of, which was uh, published in May of this year. Uh, what ancient climates tell us about high carbon dioxide concentration in Earth's atmosphere. I found that to be really, really interesting uh, paper. I mean, just to give the listeners a bit of a, a summary, um, you talked about how you kind of looked at trapped air bubbles uh, from frozen deep in, in polar ice sheets uh, and that they're kind of like time capsules, right? And they, they record CO2 levels. Uh, and so you can kind of tell what the world was like uh, thousands of years ago. And that uh, you talk about the, the Pliocene and the Eocene and how high the carbon atmosphere, uh, carbon uh, concentration, parts per million concentration was back then and how different the world was. I was wondering if you can give us uh, your own kind of definition of, of uh, or uh, sorry, your own explanation of what the Pliocene is with the Eocene and, and, and why we should be worried. Yeah, so I mean, essentially carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is the great modulator of our, of our global climate. When the concentrations go up, it's a greenhouse gas. Uh, the planet's temperature goes up. And when the concentration goes down, the, the reverse happens. Um, um, we absolutely know that. It's, it's, it is documented so well in the recent climate record uh, and in further back uh, in the geological record as well. And yet the Antarctic ice sheet is absolutely a time machine. And that's because the surface snow gets buried. And as it gets buried, the further down beneath the surface you go, the older that ice, which was once snow, uh, becomes. And um, after about, you know, you've got a snowball, think about a snowball in your hand, uh, most of it's air, right? And the same is true of Antarctica, but when it gets buried, after about 70 years of burial, takes about that long, um, the air within that snow and ice is starting to get more dense because it's under a lot of weight. Um, the air within it gets cut off from the atmosphere around it. So it's now a time capsule and it forms a little air bubble in the ice and you can retrieve the ice and you can sample the air and it is an absolute sample of a former atmosphere. From a ice carrot, right? <laughs> cool. From a, you've got to core it out and, and you can go quite deep with, with mechanical ice uh, coring now down to you know, 3,000 3, meters, right? Straightforward. And, and what it tells us is that the earth has been subject to ice ages paced by the way the orbit, the earth orbits around the sun, but absolutely driven by carbon dioxide. The, the, the way that the earth orbits around the sun is in very subtle changes, but those subtle changes are enough to nudge the earth system into a certain direction. And that invokes through feedback processes, carbon dioxide to, to change one way or another. And when the carbon dioxide starts to go up, the world gets warmer. And when this carbon dioxide goes down, the world gets cooler. The, the two numbers are important. Every single time we have an ice age, last one was 20,000 years ago, the CO2 level on the planet in the atmosphere was 180 parts per million. And when you come out of an ice age, between ice ages, and that means sea level goes up by 130 meters and all the ice sheets melt, that's because the CO2 has gone up to 280 parts per million. That's a hundred parts per million difference between an ice age and an interglacial where we are now. So over, sorry, over like 10,000 years. About, so, right? Yeah, yeah, about 10,000 years to, to melt the ice. In the last 10,000 years, we've been in an interglacial and the temperature on the planet has been relatively stable, right? A few fluctuations. 
people, climate skeptics often talk about fluctuations and there have been some fluctuations and they're often right in, in terms of various processes that can cause temperature to change, but nothing like the scale of the, of the ice age uh, at all. Until 1850, the level of CO2 in the atmosphere was 280 parts per million. And then we started putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, literally at an industrial scale. And then the, car, the world's temperature started to go up. It's gone up by slightly more than one degree centigrade since one degree since 1850. And the level of CO2 in the atmosphere now, at this moment, I think it's about 411 parts per million. It's the end of the summer until the CO2 comes down annually at the end of each, each summer. In the springtime, it was about 416 parts per million. So somewhere around there as a figure. That's a lot, and that's a lot higher than the natural glacial to interglacial envelope of 180 to 280 parts per million. Now, it took the world 10,000 years to increase the CO2 level from 180 to 280 parts per million, right? It took 10,000 years for that to happen. We've put 100 parts per million in the atmosphere since I've been alive, right, in the last 50 or so years. That's 200 times quicker than the Earth did it naturally as it came out of the Ice Age. So you think, okay, well, let's ask a couple of questions. When was the last time we had 400 parts per million of atmospheric CO2, right? You've got to go back 4 million years into the Pliocene. Pliocene was somewhere between 5 and 3 million years ago. When there were megalodons and, and uh, ground yeah, sloths. Yeah, <laughs> megalodons in the, in the, in the ocean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The sloths are, are still keep me up at night. They, they, they seem so scary. <laughs> just these massive beasts. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the world was warmer and it could accommodate yeah. these, these, big, um, these big fauna. But the, the, the issue that we have is the world was warmer. It's 3 to 5 degrees centigrade warmer, right? The sea level was something like 20 metres higher then than now. So that's probably no Greenland ice sheet at all. West Antarctica probably wasn't there either. And bits of East Antarctica were probably taken away as well. All right, and that's with the CO2 level that we have at the moment. Right? It doesn't really stop there, though, because the way that we're inputting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, just pretend that we, we, we take no action. And my optimism about climate change is completely misplaced. And the world just keeps pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere the, the way that we're doing it right now. And the economy grows driven by fossil fuels. By the end of this century, there'll be somewhere around a thousand parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. Now, we've had, we've had that before as well. But you've got to go back about 50 million years, 50 million years, the last time that happened. There was a time called the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, the PETM. Further back in time you go, the more difficult it is. You're looking at the geological record, not a direct sample. These are proxy records, and you have to do sort of calculations on the um, isotopic and chemical constituents of, of say, carbonate sediments and things to, to infer what the level of CO2 in the atmosphere was, is going to be like. So they're not super accurate, but they give you a rough idea about what's, what, what's happening. It looks like the PETM was a really rapid spike in carbon dioxide, which caused temperatures to go up dramatically. And when I say rapid, it probably was somewhere between 20 and 50,000 years due to volcanic activity, spewing out carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases from volcanoes. And in geological terms, 20,000, 50,000 years is very, very quick. And, and temperatures went up by, you know, they went up to 12 to 13 degrees warmer than they are today as a consequence of that. Well, 
the scenario that I painted earlier, which is what we do nothing about climate change, no action at all, just keep burning fossil fuels and we'll get there by the end of this century, 2100, 1000 parts per million. That will take us 80 years to do it. Again, it's like 200 times quicker than the fastest the world could possibly do it. Yeah. It's not really the end members that are the concern. You know, could humans live in a world with 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide? We have, well, yes, because we're doing it. It's the rate of change that's mm -hmm. so concerning. It's that we're changing things, geologically speaking, instantly. And we are conducting a crazy experiment on our planet. Let's just see what happens when we suddenly switch the CO2 to what it was four million years ago. Yeah. Right? Let's, and let's do it again to see what happens if we switch the CO2 to what it was 50 million years ago and see how we react to that. It's just a daft experiment. Really and not crazy, only, not only were temperatures 13 degrees higher, you said, but, but during the Eocene, which were what we're looking at in worst case scenarios for end yeah. of the century, but also the, the sea levels were... Uh, in your paper, you said about 70 meters higher than well, they are today. So the sea levels are quite difficult because it's all about the relationship of the land masses and things, but there was yeah. no ice on the planet then. And so we know there's enough ice on the planet to raise sea levels by 60 plus meters uh, now. So, you know, it's an easy conclusion to draw that sea levels would relative to today be much higher. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, no, these sound like uh, doomsday scenarios, but like you said, you know, they've They've happened before on Earth, and hopefully we'll never have to... Yeah, see, I, I, I really argue against this doomsday stuff because it, it's not. It's just knowledge of past climates, mm -hmm. knowledge of what has happened on our planet when the CO2 has been at a certain level. And that has to inform about what we're doing to our planet and where it's going to go in, in the future and how habitable it's going to be. I'm not of the opinion that humans are going to become extinct under 400 or even a thousand parts per million but the way in which we inhabit the planet will have to be completely altered under those scenarios through sea level change through the fact that some parts of the planet simply won't be too hot or too dry to, to live on and it's entirely avoidable we don't need to conduct that experiment we can we can change but we all have to be part of it you know this is this is a problem that we're all facing it's a global issue it's not just for governments to solve. It's not just for businesses to solve. And it's not just for people to solve, but it is for all of us uh, to do it. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I think uh, we're going to have to let you go. But just before we do, I, I want to ask you to maybe, just for our listeners that probably have never been to Antarctica, can you can you tell us, like, it, very briefly, give us a, a sort of description of what it feels like to be in that scenery and to, to live through that kind of experience? Uh, absolutely. I think we, we can all we can all close our eyes for a couple of minutes and imagine. <laughs> well, the first thing, first time you go to Antarctica, it is this exceptionally special moment, and um, and I remember it very very well. Um, how obviously how cold it is, right? <laughs> and how there's ice and snow everywhere, and it just seems that's obvious, but you can't help but you know be amazed by it. It's one of the most beautiful parts of the world, largely un un untouched by human people. Um, it is probably the closest we can come on this planet to, to what a, another world looks like, right? an, an icy world. Um, it is remarkable. Around the edge, it's extremely beautiful and all the wildlife is, is exceptional. As you go onto the interior, uh, it gets another type of beauty, um, but it's, it is stark and desolate and, and extraordinarily flat. Um, uh, the weather 
is bizarre as well. You know, when you have really cold days, say minus 25 degrees centigrade, um, often those are the really nice days because the wind is stopped and the sun's out. And even though the air temperature is really cold, you get warmed up by the, uh, by the uh, solar warmth. It's when they get a bit of high cloud and the wind kicks up again. And even then the temperature might go up as a weather front comes in, but you really feel it. As soon as the moisture content in the air goes up right, and the wind kicks in, you start to get really cold. Um, so you need proper clothing and proper uh, uh, suitable tents and, and accommodation to be able to survive in yeah. it. Um, I should say, tell you that 24 hours of, uh, of daylight loses its novelty after 24 hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get really sick of it because you just can't get to sleep. You have to arrive patches on and things but it is an ex extremely special place and um it's it's a it's a place that uh we we need to look after because it is changing and uh especially around the edges it's changing and and it is entirely avoidable we we can uh, put measures in place globally to protect these environments these are pristine fragile systems and uh, and it, it is within our control to protect them yeah all right, Martin Seeger, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Human IC podcast. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions. So please head either to Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook and find us at Our Human IC or The Human IC Podcast. Or even send us a good old fashioned email at humanlcthepodcast at gmail.com. You can find all our links on linktr.ee slash the human odyssey podcast. That's linktr.ee slash the human odyssey podcast. You can also find there our Patreon site where you too can donate a few bucks a month to get a multitude of rewards, including early episode access, bonus episodes, requests, live stream hangouts, etc. etc. And of course, shout outs. Speaking of which, big thank you to our loyal crew members, Nadia, Shadia, Tommy and Pablo, for their help guiding this odyssey. We love you very much. <laughs>